Good morning. It's good to be here. For those who don't know me, my name is Norman. I'm one of the pastors here at King's Cross. Uh, I'm grateful that we're worshiping together. Um, to visitors who are visiting us today, you know, welcome, welcome. We're glad that you're here. Uh, I'm grateful for our community. I, I know um, Curtis earlier prayed about uh, community groups and just hearing bits and pieces from different groups gathering, uh, learning how to be together again. Thank you. Thank you for meeting. Thank you for meeting. I know it's quite an ask uh, for people who live in New York to, you know, give up an evening, so to speak. But there's a kind of goodness that can only happen when we gather together, um, when we come together and share life together. Uh, it's not something that happens normally, at least not regularly. So to build up that discipline of meeting together, it's good. It's good. I'm praying for all of you as you meet. Um, I pray that in the messiness and busyness that this season has brought and seems to continue to bring, that we would experience the gospel of grace together as we meet, that you would have occasions to see it at work in our lives. Um, as we learned last week, we're learning as a church how to be, how to be together in our witness and it's my hope that in our CGs, our, our practice of love and grace together would join with our proclamation of what the gospel is so that we could both, both sides know and experience Christ. Uh, if you would join your hearts with mine as we pray, I'll ask the Lord to speak to us this morning. Would you pray with me? Loving Father, whose love and care continues to us today, we ask that you would teach us from your word. Let your same spirit that comforted your disciples in their anxiety and worry at the start of your church comfort us now as we gather together in your presence. May your spirit enable us more and more every week, more and more to see more of Jesus. It is in his name that we pray. Amen. Uh, we're moving on in our series in Acts, uh, looking at how the early church formed and embodied the gospel in its actions and in its being. Um, I also realize in, in the rush to start this last week that I forgot to even say what the series is called. Um, this series is called Being in Acts. Very clever. We have, we have our Pastor Joshua for that fantastic name. Um, last week, we looked at the church immediately after the ascension, right? They were all anxious, not sure what's going on. And to an anxious and confused group of disciples, I don't know if we can quite call them the church yet, but the gathering of people, Jesus told them, wait. He said, wait. Wait for the coming gift of the Spirit. Um, you can find that sermon online if you want to try to get up to where we are. Uh, you can, it's okay to do it out of order, uh, but the, Jesus tells them, wait, wait together, be together until the Spirit comes. And today we're going to look at what happened after the Spirit finally came upon them. So would you turn your attention to the word as I read uh, from verses in chapter 2 of Acts? And I'm going to skip around today a little bit, but it should be there. From the beginning of Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound 
like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak to uh, speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, "Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it?" That we hear each of us in his own native language.、Uh, skipping to the second half of verse eleven, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God, and all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, "What does this mean?" But others, mocking, said, "They are filled with new wine." But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, "Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem." Let this be known to you, and give ear to my words, for these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. That's nine a.m. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and daughters and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And it shall come to pass that every one who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Verse thirty-six: Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, "Brothers, what shall we do?" And Peter said to them, "Repent and be baptized, every one of you." In the name of Jesus Christ, for for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promises for you, and for your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord whom the Lord our God calls to Himself. And with many other words, He bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, "Save yourselves from this crooked generation." So those who received His word, and were baptized, and there were added that day about. Three thousand souls. The word of the Lord.、Uh, we're looking at the events at Pentecost today, and I want to share with you that as I was reading this passage,、um, I was reading it in full. I know I gave, believe it or not, that was a shorter part,、um, just for our time together. As I was looking at this passage, it was a little difficult for me to prepare this week, because when I read this passage, and I suspect maybe some of you as well. Um, I get a little bit distracted because I get sucked into a particular phenomena, I guess, a particular angle on this passage. Because you know, this passage records a pretty extraordinary event. It's not typical. People were heard speaking a language they had no business speaking.、Uh, for those who might might not know me or might not know this part about me. Um, I am Chinese, but you should know that my Chinese speaking ability is not not great.、Uh, it's barely there.、Um, I know some people who do speak Chinese better would prefer to speak to me in English.、Um, but if I suddenly started 
speaking in Chinese, like, like well, um, I'd probably turn heads. Like, oh, where, what, where, where have you been? Duolingo? Like, like, what's been going on? It would be surprising, but it wouldn't be, you know, out of the realm of possibility. But imagine if all of a sudden I started speaking in like Romanian or, or Icelandic. Like, what? Like that would be that would be incredible, um, unimaginable. Are, are we in the Matrix? Did he just load a program? For those of you who know what the Matrix is, I, I realize that there are generation gaps in the conversations I've had with people. The Matrix—they load programs in your mind.、Um, are we in the Matrix? What's going on? But that's what was happening here. It, it seems like it, it was unexplainable. It was an extraordinary event. And I know in our time we're, we're often drawn to things like this. I'm drawn to things like this. This would definitely go viral, right? In a sense, it went viral in its own、um, cultural way.、Uh, I guess the temple complex would be the the internet. That's where everything information gets exchanged. And I kept getting distracted. I was just reading this and preparing this message because I was asking, "Gosh, what would our church think about this?" How would our church respond? So, if I could start this message by getting this out of the way first, because I know some of us come from traditions where some form of this is commonplace—what's often called speaking in tongues—and I know for others, we might come from traditions where we have a pretty strong aversion to anything that remotely rhymes with supernatural gifts. So today, I'm not—I'm just going to tell you up front—I'm not going to. Get into whether or not these gifts are present today. I know some of us might be asking that. I actually don't even think this text even attempts to answer that question. That's a question we have today because we like stuff like this. Ooh, what kind of superpowers do you have? I know, like after Star Wars, we're like we all try to do the Force.、Um, that's not what this is about. I think one of the dangers, as we're starting this、uh, study in the Book of Acts, one of the dangers. We face when we look at the early church, or if we look at any church for that matter, is that we start to think that a particular church is a is a church to model or to copy. You know, we we ask, oh, if we don't speak in tongues, are we filled with the Spirit? Or if we don't have this kind of children's program or this kind of like social outreach or community service, are, are we is our church less of a witness? We start to ask these questions when we look at any church. If our sermons don't sound like so and so, or if they don't address, you know, this hot topic, are we being faithful? Are we losing our identity? Are we going soft? Some of us might say, "Are we still Christian?" I think that's a distraction. I don't want to try to mimic Pentecost as King's Cross. I want to look into the meaning of Pentecost in this passage, so that we today, as we look at the meaning, we have this good work to work out. What the meaning is applied to our time, in our neighborhood, in our with the people that are here. We have the good work of seeing how that plays out in our context. So, with that out of the way, let's look at Pentecost. In Jewish worship and practice, for those who don't do the feasts, Pentecost was also known as the Feast of Weeks. It was the second of three major feasts. The second one of three major feasts that the Jewish people celebrated—they still do it today.、Uh, the first one being Passover, the second one 
Pentecost, Feast of Weeks, and the, and the last one, Feast of Booths or Feast of Tabernacles, depending on who you talk to. Um, on such feast days, let me just set the setting here. On such feast days, the city, Jerusalem, would be filled with people. Filled. It's a feast day. Every, because the, the law states that every able-bodied male is required to travel to Jerusalem to participate. They're required to. That's why verse 5 in our passage today, if you see that, it says, it says that these Jews were devout men. They were devout men. They were following Torah. Their Torah. I'll, I'll use both, sorry. Um, they were following Torah. They were being faithful to God's statutes. And this feast, it's a, it's a celebratory feast. They were, it, it, was a, it was a joyous occasion because it celebrated the wheat harvest. But we also know from Jewish writings at that point um, that at that point in history, this feast was more than just a harvest feast. It, it took on additional meanings. Um, this feast took on a greater significance in celebrating the giving of the law. It marked when God gave the law to Moses on Mount Sinai. So what they started to add into their practice, other than just bringing like bread, it's the wheat harvest, um, they had this practice in the first century of an all-night Torah study. Um, they, were, they were there ready with God on their minds. They were there to, to, to worship. They were there as an act of obedience, but it was also an act of devotion. I'm trying to help us paint a picture of the people there. They weren't just like walking around and then just like, so, this, is, this is their mindset. They were there for a purpose. But you see, they had no idea that at this Pentecost, that something was going to happen that would change everything. So at this Pentecost, for our time together, I'm just going to point out three things for us, uh, because that's what we do in sermons. Um, there, there are three things I want to point out for us that happened at this Pentecost. Um, one, there was a curse that was undone, a curse that was undone, reversed, um, Two, there was a new word that was revealed. Something new was given. And finally, in response to that new word, there was a response that was required. So one, a curse was reversed. Two, a new divine word was given. And then three, a new response was required. So first, um, a curse was undone. A curse was reversed. The very fact that at this gathering that there were pilgrims from all the nations, it, was, it, it testified that, that something went wrong. That Israel failed to, be, to keep the covenant, to, to be who God called them to be. Um, throughout the Hebrew Bible, um, the promise of God for Israel, the covenant there, is that they... It, the, the, co the covenant and the promise was always connected to having the land. Um, and the judgment against them for breaking the covenant was that they would either lose the land and be exiled, or um, in the words of the prophets, they would be ruled by a people who spoke a language they didn't understand. So they would, be, they would lose the land and be exiled, or they would be ruled by someone else who spoke a language they didn't understand. The otherness that the prophets would speak of, of, the, of the nations, it actually extended from a curse at Babel. Um, 
where God at Babel, and this is in Genesis 11, God confused the speech of the people so they couldn't understand each other. And then he divided them. He scattered them across the earth. But do you see what's happening here at this Pentecost? Here, the undoing of that division was taking place right in front of their eyes. Jesus, in our last uh, message together, in our last time together, Jesus had just promised his followers that they would be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and the ends of the earth. He just said that in the last chapter, but no one was expecting that to come 10 days later, like so literally in a sense. For here at Pentecost, rather than the lack of understanding that was at Babel, there was a full understanding. Do you see that? Everyone understood what was spoken, but diversity was not lost. As verse 11 says, they were hearing in their own tongues the mighty works of God. It was one message, but without confusion. One message is expressed in diversity, but without division. Here, the early church, in, in, in being filled with the Spirit and doing this, planted the seeds of a message, a message that would go to the ends of the earth. Uh, earlier, we heard from the Kims that evidence that this seed is continuing to grow. It's continuing to grow. That despite hardships, God, God sustains his church. He is following this through to the end. His purposes can't be stopped. And I think the word for us from this reversal of a curse is that we have to, we have to remember that in this, everyone, it says that everyone is included. No one is excluded from the promise now. It used to be only one people, but now everyone is brought in. If you're new to the church or if you're going through a low, you know, a, a difficult time, maybe you think that the promise is only for those in the in crowd, those who've lived moral lives, those who have good families, good children, those who have studied the scriptures or who've had supernatural experiences. But the reversal in this text explicitly says the opposite. It says the opposite. Near and far, as Paul would say, is being brought together by the mighty works of God. This is a message for, for everyone, for all the world. Don't count yourself out. It's overflowing to the nations, starting right here. Verse 21 says that to all who are gathered there, everyone who calls upon the name, everyone shall be saved. And we'll move on to as this reversal comes with a new word. See, the, the pilgrims that were traveling to Jerusalem were there to celebrate the giving of God's word, the, the giving of Torah, the gift. But they were not expecting to be gifted anything new. They were just celebrating something that, would, that has happened. Now, there are some interesting parallels in this whole passage with the Hebrew scriptures, I'm just going to highlight a few for our time together today. If you're interested, want to nerd out a little bit, you can grab me afterwards. Um, but the first thing I just wanted to highlight is that in Torah, when Moses speaks with God, he, he describes it a certain way, or it's, it's recorded a certain way. Moses often described the Lord speaking from the midst of fire. Speaking from the midst of fire. 
not just the burning bush that might be the first image in your mind, but, but actually throughout all of Israel's wanderings, God spoke to them from, from the fire. He led them by a fire and a cloud, and he spoke from there. When Moses would travel up Mount Sinai to speak with God, do you know how, how they describe the mountain? The, the mountain is described as it's engulfed in fire. There's lightning. There's a glow. And a voice would come out. And here, the same thing is happening again. There's a parallel here. Something that could only be described as divine intervention was happening. Words, again, were coming from fire, speaking the mighty works of God. We also see that there's a wind that's coming through. Um, The same spirit, the same wind, the, the ruach of God from Genesis 1 that was present in creation, hovering over the chaos of pre-creation, hovering over the unordered chaos, speaking the world into being. Well, here again, look at the first few verses. There's a wind that rushes into a room, hovering over this anxious gathering, this unordered chaos of the disciples. And it spoke a new church into being. Now, in my reading of this passage, the the mighty works of God being proclaimed by the multilingual group, the the multiple voices, multiple tongues, Peter Peter makes what they said explicit in uh, the common vernacular a few verses down. If you look at Peter's words in verses 22 to 24, he says the same thing. I, I, I think he's saying the same, whereas everyone else was speaking in different tongues of the nations. Peter makes plain in the vernacular. He speaks it in, I would assume, to be Greek or Aramaic before the crowd so that everyone could hear. He said to the men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it is not possible for him to be held by it. Peter is telling them that Jesus, the man that, the same group, you know that it's the same group of people that come for these feasts, the man that they saw here just 50 days ago at, at Passover when they gathered for the first feast, that same man that they rejected, they were here for that the man that they crucified, Peter is making known to them, well, guess what? He's the savior that you've been longing for. He's the son of God. And he proved that he's the son of God by rising from the dead. He could not be held back. Peter is telling them, the one you were against, you might not have known, but you were against him. He rose from the dead. He's the son of God. Now, I know we hear this so often, but this, this is actually the central message of the church. And I know sometimes we, we do the formulaic, he rose from the dead, and we, and we go on. But I want to stop here for a second, because this is the gospel. Jesus has overcome sin and death. We may, for those of us who grew up in the church, we, we may have heard it a bunch of times, but this is the first. And it, it smacked them across the face. For those of us who have been in the church for a while, I I pray that this message never gets old. Because sometimes it does seem like we just say it. 
My prayer for us as we are learning to be the church, as we're learning to be the church, that this message doesn't become some kind of mythology that we ascribe to, that it never becomes a side belief, secondary to our social causes or secondary to our love for one another. My prayer is that this message, that Jesus has risen from the dead, becomes the fuel to our being. Not something formulaic, something we just say. Because if it's just something we say, if it's just a slogan, if it hasn't gotten to the core of us, if it isn't true that Jesus is risen from the dead, we're wasting our time. Paul would say, if it's not true, the world should pity us. We're waste, we're, we're, everyone should pity us for subscribing to a lie. So my question for us as we're forming as a church, as we're learning to be together, as our community groups are meeting as we have fellowship lunch after service and connect, has this message become secondary to us? Has it become secondary in our lives? King's Cross, I hope that we would practice letting this message, he is risen, sink into our, the most foundational parts of our souls. Because we see in this text, this new word, the word made flesh, this new word, this new revelation, it provoked a response. You can't just sit there and think like, oh, all right, well, that's interesting. No, you can't. If you look at this passage, and we'll close by looking at this, how did people respond? There was, there was a response here. This calls for a new response. It demanded one. Because after the initial proclamation of all the disciples speaking in multiple tongues, declaring the mighty works of God, right? There were two kinds of responses, and I think maybe most of us can fall into one or the other. The first one is, these guys are drunk. They're crazy. Someone rose from the dead? And then the other one is, well, ah, they were amazed. What does this mean? What does it mean for this man who we saw die rise from the dead. Do you find your response in one of those somewhere or somewhere in the spectrum? I think we're pulled to the extremes by, by just the, the shock value of this. Someone rose from the dead. Well, Peter then goes to explain, as we said before, we saw it in verses 22 to 24. Peter goes on to explain that this Jesus was a promised Messiah. He explains that he rose from that. He's the one that you've been waiting for. And then it says that they were cut to the heart in verse 37, wounded to their core, troubled in their thoughts and in their emotions because they suddenly realized beyond all doubt because he has, they, they, they recognize that he has risen from the dead, that all along they've been working against God and they didn't know. They were against the very Messiah that they longed for. Because if you remember what they were doing, they went to Jerusalem to worship. They were here thinking they were doing all the right things, living a righteous life, things that people would praise. Oh, they're so good. They, they, follow, they follow the law. They go to all the feasts. They're doing the right things. They're bringing their first fruit offerings with them. Uh, the first fruit offerings for Pentecost is two loaves of bread because it's wheat. Um, they had these, they probably had this bread in their hands. And they, after hearing from Peter, they, they must have looked at their hands 
holding these two loaves of bread and, and realize this is a little inadequate for what was just revealed. These two loaves of bread, even, even the animals that would come along with this offering, what do we do? That's why they respond, what should we do? Brothers, what shall we do? What can we do? Peter spells out for them, in response to that question, Peter spells out the grace of God in verse 38. He says to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. See, while they were there to offer their first fruits, their gifts to God, Peter tells them, even though they were cut to the heart, he says, and instead of condemning them, God actually wants to give them a gift or make them a kind of first fruits. God was giving an offering. He was giving them his spirit. The nature of the gospel over and over is that God always acts first. God acts first. God does not wait to evaluate if our offerings are good enough, if our bread has the right crack, if our bread is good enough, if our offerings are unblemished enough. He doesn't demand that we meet some standard before giving us gifts. He acts first. He gives, he gives, he gives, he gives. Our worship, the things that we do when we gather together, when we meet together, when we serve one another, when we serve our community, these acts of obedience and devotion, they're responses to his goodness, not things that we do to earn his goodness. So King's Cross, when we consider the grace that our Lord shows us, is he not worthy of our first fruits? Is he not worthy of our whole life response? Paul would exhort the church in Romans 12, if you're familiar with that verse, it says that the, our logical response in worship is that we offer our whole selves. And my question as I, as I ponder that is, have we responded in parts but held back the rest? God can use whoever and whatever. In verse 7 at the top, when the, when the people that were gathered were like, are these not Galileans? That was not a very positive um, label. Galileans were kind of like country folk. This is Jerusalem, this city. Are these not Galileans? God can use anyone. God can use whatever your gifts are, whether you're a teacher, whether you're a designer, whether you are an educator, an artist, whether you are just good with gathering people. If you're really good at board games, God can use you. If you like leading hikes, God, like, God can use anyone. Offer our whole selves. That's our spiritual act of worship, our logical act of worship. When these devout men came to worship, bringing their first fruits of the harvest, it bore witness. When you offer your first fruits, it bore witness that the whole harvest belongs to the Lord. Likewise, when God gives us the gift of the Spirit, it's a pledge that the whole person belongs to the Lord. That God will continue to care for that person in whom the first fruit Spirit was deposited. He would care for that person until the full harvest. Church at Pentecost, the worshipers thought they were giving first fruits, offerings for the feast. But God was planting his own harvest. 
God was planting the message of Christ and giving the gift of his spirit such that that day, as we see later on in that verse, there was a harvest. There was a first fruits, so to speak, of 3,000 souls. 3,000 souls. At Pentecost, those 3,000 souls not only joined at the Pentecost feast, but they were given their ticket, their deposit, that they will join in the feast of the Lamb, the one that we will all participate in. We come to this table every week to remind ourselves that we, we join. Do you know that those 3,000 that are attested to in our passage today, we will sit with them. Does that, does that not blow your mind? Like, they're famous. I mean, they're not named. But we will sit with them at the Feast of the Lamb. This table's reminder that the gift of Christ, his spirit in us, assures us that we will have a seat at the table. We will be together, enjoying his goodness. On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took bread, and after giving